This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody and welcome to your latest Analyzing Anfield. We are at the home of the European Champions Liverpool Football Club. Six times, let's talk about six. If you're just coming back from Madrid, some of you may be still over there. Uh, you know, what 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 an incredible weekend it was to be either in Madrid or in Liverpool or anywhere in the world, wherever you are watching. I hope that the hangovers have subsided and you're having a fantastic, fantastic week. With me as always is Josh Williams. I am your host. Christian Walsh. Uh, I'm a little bit run down to be honest, Josh. Um, swollen glands. I don't know if I, I'm getting something serious or if it's just the fact that for the past five days I've been on an absolute emotional roller coaster and I'm drained. Um, you seem all right though, so how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, obviously. Obviously, because uh, my club is now European champions for the first time since 2005, so um, yeah, I couldn't be better myself. Absolutely fantastic. I'd Went to Malaga on Thursday, drove to Madrid on Friday, two nights there, watched the Rigi, put the final nail in the coffin, watched Liverpool Football Club and Jordan Henderson lift the cup on Spilbao on Sunday and back home on Monday. It's been a whirlwind five days and uh, it's been emotional, it's been draining, but bloody hell, some of the pictures that are coming out there, it's, it's remarkable. But we will crack on and we'll do what we always do on this show. We will get into the nitty gritty, we will drill down into absolutely everything. We will try our best, our level best, to look at this from an analytical point of view instead of just screaming that Liverpool are the champions of Europe over and over again for the next hour. So Josh, Liverpool are the champions of Europe. Uh, you said it would be difficult, you said it would be tight and you were not wrong. I did uh, and I was, I was right about a couple of things but I was wrong in some respects too, particularly in relation to whether it'd be like a, a Premier League game or a European mm. game. I expected a, a higher tempo, um, a bit more cohesion, a bit more energy and stuff but it did play out very much like a European final. I thought it was quite sluggish, a bit detached. Um, and I thought the overall tempo was quite slow. I think from Liverpool's perspective, it helped us manage the lead that we got early. Um, it just didn't feel like as 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 fast of a game as as we've became accustomed to. Um, whether that's to do with the level of you know risk versus reward on the night. Obviously, you just at all costs don't want to concede. Maybe that that comes into it, but it just felt like a. A, a generally slower match, um, although it was tight, of course. It might have been the heat as well, you know, Josh. I can't. That's a good point. Can't yeah. convey how warm it was even on kickoff. It was absolutely balmy, and we were in an air-conditioned press box. But you know, down on pitch level, it was absolutely roasting. So maybe that uh, played into it. Um, I must admit, you know, and I know this is a. a a podcast which doesn't really like believe in sort of chance and circumstance necessarily, but I was a little bit worried about the game um, simply for the fact that Liverpool have beaten Spurs twice this season, and it just feels like when you play it when two teams who are very very good play each other, it's very rare that you see free victories um, in 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 a season. You know, even if you look at someone like uh, Man City versus Chelsea, that was and obviously Man City are much better than Chelsea. Um, you know, Man City won one, drew one and lost one in those three games. So for Liverpool to beat Spurs three, three times in normal time, um, you know, surprised me. Um, 
But yeah, I worried about them, but I actually think it helped. And um, that's because, you know, Liverpool did beat them twice in the league. And it seemed to me, and I'll throw out a few numbers here, that they replicated um, what worked so well for them in the in the first two games in the league meetings. Um, you know, we talked about the long ball game in uh, last week's episode. And that's exactly what Liverpool did. 252 passes all game from Liverpool, Josh. That's not completed. That's just 252 passes passes attempted. That's remarkable. The, the, the average 582 a game this season, which is 320 fewer. Well, 320 more. And it's 483 in the Champions League passes attempted. I mean, can you believe that? Yeah, it's worth saying as well that Spurs attempted 501. <laughs> so that's just off double uh, the amount that we attempted. 35.8% possession that we that we had in the Champions League final. Uh, it sounds bad. And this is one thing that frustrated me a little bit, especially listening to the commentary on the night. Jermaine Genus was was doing the game. And uh, he's obviously one of them who, who perceives possession dominance as match dominance. And it's not always that. It's not always as simple as that. You've got to consider sometimes, I think, whether, whether Liverpool actually want the ball. And I think if you look at particularly how we played at Wembley, um, and how we tend to attack in big matches and the fact that we sustained the lead very early. I think it's a... I, I just don't think Liverpool wanted the ball to an extent. I think mm. Liverpool... Like, Jose Mourinho has... I think he's got seven principles of, of winning. Um, I can't remember. He released them a couple of years ago. They were really interesting from, from his perspective to how he perceives the game so differently to many coaches. Um, and I'll, I'll just, I'll list two of them here. Um, the game is won by the team who commits the fewest errors. And another one, away from home, instead of trying to be superior to the opposition, it's better to encourage their mistakes. Now, I've always, although many people would consider Mourinho and Klopp to be polar opposites, I've always thought that they're very, very similar in many respects. It's just Klopp's more of a more of an offensive, um, entertaining version almost of Mourinho. But in terms of the way they provoke mistakes in the opposing team, especially in big matches, it's very similar. Mourinho's team do it more in a defensive sense, whereas Klopp's team do it more. You know, we provoke mistakes um, more so. But I just thought it was interesting because if you consider that in relation to... It, it's difficult to tell whether we deliberately altered once we gained the lead because we gained it so early. Mm. But if we did, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me too much. And um, especially considering it's a final and things like that. It just wouldn't surprise me if the, the, the possession share and the number of passes attempted, although we'll have wanted to... Although we'll have wanted the ball to stick more... It, I, it wouldn't have surprised me if um, if that was kind of a deliberate a deliberate ploy almost. Well, I mean, you look at the, the lowest possession of the season as well, um, and you know, I think it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B, from what you just said there, Josh. Because you know, Liverpool did this twice against Tottenham, especially at Wembley. You know, the other, I think it was was it forty percent possession, or something like that. Um, but this was their lowest possession share of the season. 
And the average pass length was a 16.57 meters, which is comfortably the longest pass average distance they've they've had this season. And of course, uh, the, the the two previous uh, leaders were the Tottenham home and Tottenham away game. So, you know, even without that first goal coming so early on, um, you do think, don't you, that it was it was always going to be a, a, that those tactics were always going to be like that. People are saying it's a bad game, and you, you know, you just touched upon that, but. It was this just not Klopp's sort of, and I've put it down here as like a coming out party to the world. You know, we all know the the, the tropes around Jurgen Klopp. We all know what people think about him. That he's um, he's a man motivator more than anything else. Cheerleader, a cheerleader. You know, is this to show that Liverpool have got a manager and a man for all occasions? That was a that was a Mourinho peak Mourinho Porto esque performance. It wasn't. I think you've you've got to consider that Klopp. Um, how many finals has he lost in a row? Was it six? Six. He's done. A, he's he's had a fair learning process there. I think Klopp's always uh, reinforced that it's it's okay to lose, providing you learn the lesson from that. And he's obviously lost six finals in a row, which hurts. And I think gradually he's picked up on just those Mourinho type traits that you need in a final. You don't necessarily need them. Well, you obviously do, but you don't You don't necessarily need them week to week against the likes of, I don't know, Burnley or something. But in a one-off isolated final, you just have to win. That is it. Performance doesn't matter, to an extent at least. You just have to win. And um, I think it was, I think it was really evident from Liverpool's perspective. We seemed... We seemed intent on removing any risk or elements of chance from the game. Um, by, you know, there was there was very little building from the back. We was bypassing our own midfield. Um, if we had to just hit the ball into the stands, we would. It was very pragmatic, and I, and I mean that in a positive sense. It was pragmatic. You know, pragmatic just means like realistic, streetwise, and that kind of thing. And that, that's what you've got to be in a final. So I think, I do think we performed badly with the ball. I think we, th- I don't think the plan will have been for the ball to stick as as little as it did. Um, you know, 70.2% of our passes were completed. That's our lowest all season. Mm. Um, 70.2. The second way is to 78 so 70.2 is considerably, yeah. it's rock bottom like for us. Um, and funnily enough, the second worst, that 78% was against Everton at Goodison Park. And that's a similar game, similar um, scenario in terms of you want to risk very little. Mm. Um, must not lose. Although obviously not lose, in exactly. a final you, you can lose on penalties, but it's also a must not lose in 90 minutes at least. Yeah, exactly. Must not lose, especially with a lead. You've obviously got a very early lead there. So it's it's just very pragmatic football. And I think Liverpool have developed that face this season. Liverpool haven't previously had that under Klopp. Um, and I think gradually we've just become more of a streetwise team. Um, just intense on finding a way to win when, when the attractive, aesthetically pleasing way isn't necessarily available. I mean, you might wonder why I'm, I've, you know, I'm using Mourinho, for example, as a, as a reference point. Um, 
And that's because of the last 15 Champions League finals, only three have seen a clean, a clean sheet kept. And he was in the manager of two of those teams, Inter Milan in 2010 and Porto in 2004. The other one was uh, Barcelona against uh, Manchester United in 2009. So it's not sort of, you know, praising Manchester United's Jose Mourinho. It, it, it is, you know, Mourinho is, it accounts for two of the three clean sheets in the past 15 years, which is just remarkable. And that's exactly, it reminds me of that sort of performance from, from Jürgen Klopp. Just off the top of my head as well, I can't exactly, I can't think of a, a final that Mourinho has lost. I don't think he's lost a final, has he? I maybe think, one at most. I don't think, maybe one with Chelsea. I can't think off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I know you, yeah. He's, he, um, he wins finals. There's, yeah. there's, there's no there's no getting away from that. And I'll just, I'll name two more of those little points too that Mourinho comes out with. Um, whoever has the ball has fear. And whoever does not have the ball is thereby stronger. Just interesting little mm. weird perspectives on football. And if he was your manager week to week, that would be a bit grim. But in a one-off final, you can see where he's coming from there. Um, you know, you remember the Europa League final against Ajax, Man United against mm. Ajax. And every single time they got the ball in any defensive areas, just pump it long to Fellaini just mm. to get bypass the Ajax press. It's not nice, um, but it wins gets results and in the one-off final all you have to do is win that's it and that's where Klopp's over the hills and far away compared to Mourinho now because he's actually got that ability to also play the other type of football exactly. where Mourinho can't so you know I mean this will be a theme that I'm sure will crop up throughout the podcast but what a manager Liverpool Football Club have we'll talk uh, about the game itself now um, 27 seconds Sadio Mane Um Straight down against Trippier, like we sort of suggested, Trippier was the weak link. Henderson, great ball. Trippier's been caught slightly up the pitch. It, 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 it's it's remarkable, really. Do you think he aimed for his hand? Um, I don't think he aimed for his hand, but I remember saying last week, and I've tweeted it since, that in a one-off final in isolation... You know, at no point in the season does individual player quality come into it. And you can talk about form and fans and atmosphere and tactics and everything all you like. But in a one-off final, you are heavily reliant on your players more so than before. More so than at any other stage throughout the season. And what Sissoko is doing, I do not know. Um, and that, that's, that, that just stems from the individual player quality decision making and things like that what is he doing with his hand I don't know who he's pointing at looks like he's pointing into the stance mm. um, and just by doing it it's so um, careless to mm. just to do that um, and it's harsh on him uh, but it's it's deserved to an extent for him to be to be doing such a stupid action in such a high pr- high pressure moment, high pressure match. I didn't put this down previously, but I'm sure you've seen the, the thing, Josh, about Liverpool playing Benfica B and how this has sort of led to that. I mean, we've been talking on this podcast about marginal gains since it started. I mean, is that the most marginal gain ever? Yeah, that is the that epitomizes the whole one percent kind of thing. Make taking care of the one percent ahead of a final to to get in a team and set them up exactly how you expect Spurs to set up and then try to exploit them exactly how you intend on exploiting Spurs. And giving them instructions to play like Spurs. So exactly. that was, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, they've asked Benfica B to do this in a certain situation so they know how to deal with it. 
Yeah, that's that's really really thorough, meticulous stuff. That's taking care of that. You're not leave, you're, you're leaving very little to chance. I think by by taking care of those little one percent things, um, you're just trying to control as many aspects of the fixture as you can. Uh, and it's you know from a supporter perspective, it's really really impressive to see that the people involved with the the training aspects of the club getting involved with such such thorough work, just thorough ideas. Just as a side note, I think it was Pep Linder who sorted that out, and. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I remember maybe after after any defeat, to be honest, this season, um, maybe you know the Red Star one, for example, all the cries for Buvac, you know, he was Klopp's yeah. brain, and look, I'm sure he was very very, very talented, um, but you know, they, they, nobody's saying that anymore, are they? It's, it's you know, Pep Linders has has come into the has stepped into the breach, and he's a he's clearly a very special guy as well. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later when we come to substitutions as well, I think. Um, is I've just got to throw this out there. Mane reminds me of Suarez more than any player since Suarez left. I think he's belligerent. I think he can take players on. And I think he is showing signs. He's sort of coming to the boil at the same age as, as Suarez as well. He's sort of hitting his peak at the same age. I know a lot of players hit the peak at around 26, 27, but it feels like he's ready to go up to the next level. But with Liverpool and not Barcelona, thankfully. Yeah, I think the most, I think the the, the trait that they share the most for me would be that they're both so unpredictable with the ball. You you just don't know what they're going to do with it, um, and they'll try things that maybe a clever player wouldn't even try mm-hmm. because they know it's low percentage. But for, for whatever reason, it seems to it seems to work a lot of the time with the likes of Suarez and Mane. Um, they both score all different types of goals too. Although I, I suppose Mane could maybe up his output from outside the box. I think Suarez was a, scored some ridiculous yeah. goals from outside the area. Uh, but I see I see the comparison in terms of just you know how unpredictable they are and how how much of a nightmare they are from from an opposition perspective. And you want to talk about impact as well. Um, I mean, yeah, the, I think Mane was probably the, well, he was the best of Liverpool's front three. Um, he was probably the best of, of Liverpool's from five, if we're sort of including Henderson and Wijnaldum in that. Um, you know, people haven't sort of been singing his praises for the game, but you've got to remember the run that steps up Milner in the second half. And, uh, you know, if you talk about efficiency, he had one touch in the box all game, and that was after 27 seconds, and he won a penalty from it. So that is, he, he was in a dangerous position, you know, in, inside the box once, and he made a count, and it sent Liverpool on its way. Talk about the XG, Liverpool lost the XG. Um, but does this also reflect how game state can change that? And, and sometimes you can't read too much into that because obviously once Liverpool go 1-0 up, the emphasis on creating chances is not as as, as necessary. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is why I'm... Well, I'm, I'm not sure it's difficult to tell, but this is why I'm a believer in the whole game state aspect and what, how that kind of influenced the course of the match and why it wasn't particularly entertaining. Uh, it's just teams like Newcastle and Brighton throughout the season mm. you, it's hard to judge those teams based on XG because they seem to change when they get a lead you know Rafa Benitez is known for being very strategic if he does get a lead he'll naturally just tighten up really and can't almost stop attacking try to sit on that and although Liverpool aren't one of those teams in a final that you've got to just win 
it does make sense to an extent. I, I, don't get me wrong, I do think that I, I need to keep stressing that I do think we'll have wanted the ball to stick more and we'll have wanted to be much more efficient with our attacks. We were very careless, very reckless and that's that's never ever going to be the plan. I think the direct football was the plan. The plan was to, you know, let them overcommit, let them space out and then as soon as we, we regain the ball, slice through them quickly. Um, so I've got no problem, no real problem with hitting the ball long, hoofing it long, taking very few risks on the ball. I just think that in offensive areas, we could have been more efficient. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that goes with the the XG thing. I think our, our shots was, we, we shot from bad bad areas. Um, but having, having said that, there's not a great deal wrong with that in a final because you've just got to make what you've got count. Um, like there's one match all season that Liverpool have averaged a further shot distance. I don't know if I guess or many perceive it as our worst performance of the season too, funny enough. Everton? Nope. Oh. Um, Europe. Red Star? Nope. Napoli? Napoli. But in that match, we only had four shots. Mm. Against Spurs, we had four, 14. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you're having four shots, the, the shot distance is going to be much more influence. Whereas if you're having 14 and your shot distance is still very, very... Uh, far out and offers an insight into A, that, that you're just diving on any chance that you're getting um, and B, that your, your, your attack maybe isn't as as fluid as it usually is maybe uh, but yeah I wouldn't overly look at the whole XG thing because XG is major, a big big performance indicator so in a one-off match at the end of the season when you're not really interested in future performance and mm. what it may what what it may bring you just have to win so uh, you know it's it's not something I'd focus on too much in this match also in a final you know by definition normally it's two very well matched teams because they've both got to a, a final of this quality so you're not going to be creating four and five you know XGs against the team the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo you know you mentioned there about how uh, you know reserved Liverpool away for a little bit of while you know Trent and Robertson have shots and you think Liverpool's fullbacks are going to come into the fold but they were pretty quiet in general you look at uh, heat maps that have been posted of them um, across Twitter and it, it, it's such a difference they're not playing as wingers they are playing as fullbacks again that's probably down to the game state so it's you know it's it's kind of hard to judge this game um, in isolation because of that of that goal Um so let's just skip forward now into the second half because, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting period of the game where Klopp shows that he's a proactive manager and Pochettino maybe shows that he's a reactive manager. You know, and maybe this comes down to the fact that Klopp's been in a final of this magnitude before, well, twice, um, and Pochettino hasn't. But basically, you know, the Firmino gamble backfired, but Klopp recognised this and brought on Origi. The Kane... One backfired for me, but Pochettino kept them on. I definitely understand that point. I definitely get that. You know, the, the fitness thing, um, Klopp reacted with taking Firmino off and Pochettino didn't. I, I understand that. But in terms of the proactive, reactive thing, I think they were both quite proactive in this match. Mm. Um, 
Pochettino, if you look at the you know the formational changes and the little tactical tweaks and stuff like that, Pochettino actually done you know from a managing performance quite well. He couldn't couldn't have done much better with Spurs. He just seemed to make not the best decisions in certain moments. They had plenty of opportunities to really create a clear cut chance, but to just give the ball away or go for the wrong pass. Um, I must say, I was surprised Pochettino went with Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's the kind of change, it, sorry, it's the kind of inclusion that you'd make. Obviously, you can't be that fit. So it's the kind of inclusion that you'd make for a player that is just indispensable and a, a player that decides games on his own. You know, I'm talking Kylian Mbappe, mm. Lionel Messi, players like this, Salah. Ronaldo, Salah maybe. But Kane this season has not been that. Kane, don't get me wrong, Kane is a top, top striker. And from a Spurs perspective, he should be indispensable regarding a sale. But his underlying performances this season just haven't been that great. And I looked into his numbers. This is strictly, obviously, numbers that you can measure. So certain other aspects you obviously mm. can't consider. But basically on his measurable output, I put in like his XG, his goals per 90, touches in the box, shots all things like that, conversion rate and all that. And funny enough, the player that come up to be most similar to him in terms of actual output was Higuain. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Lacaru wasn't far off. Um, Belotti wasn't far off. Just just strikers that are good. That level wrong. below, though. That but, level below. But, yeah, but they're not, they're not necessarily, you know, elite to the mm-hmm. extent whereby you would throw them in at 70%. Uh, and I just think it, I, I think it was a, a, a strange move and I, get, I think it presents the wrong message to your squad. The lad who scored a hat-trick to get you there is, and is 100%, gets benched for a player who is 70%. And I think that pre- presents the image to the team that we're a bit reliant on this lad. Uh, and... It's not. It's not the case for me. I don't think they are. Well, they got three to the European Cup final with 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 without them. Yeah, you know, certainly the you know they, they got through against City and two legs against the against Ajax. And as you say, Lucas Moura, they looked quite good when he came on. Um, managed that. Um, Milner came on for Wijnaldum. I don't know if it came across on on uh, on TV, but the, the, something happened around 58 minutes where Wijnaldum just didn't track back in a pocket of space, and Klopp lost his head. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, and that was that was it because he'd already had, I thought, a bit of a ropey first half, and I think it was just one. I, I thought it was hard because obviously Pochettino looked to pack that midfield, so they had a hell of a lot of work on uh, Liverpool, but. Um, I just thought Wijnaldum it was almost like sort of one running off the back of him too far and you know he sends out the Milner signal like the bath signal um, but Milner made five passes in 33 minutes um, <laughs> completed four of them which just shows you why he came on he wasn't there to create he wasn't there to he was just there to plug those gaps and bring that little bit of solidity and control to the midfield and, and, and in general he did it yeah no it's interesting I didn't know that Um I thought that, I mean, Klopp's a manager who's gradually, I think, come across as he doesn't, he, he waits very, very long to make changes, um, usually beyond like 75 minutes sometimes. So for him to make two around the hour mark mm-hmm. was uncharacteristic of him, I thought. And initially, I just thought that because he's such a, so focused on empathy and emotion and things like that, I think he's aware that this is a European Cup final and 
both Arigi and Milner played such a part over the course of a season to get them there and things. I think he he, he almost I, I thought he almost felt kind of bad benching them and them not being involved. So I think he he wanted to bring the pair of them on. Uh, with a fair amount of involvement still left in the game. But if if that's true regarding like uh, why not them not tracking back then it does make sense to bring Milner on because in terms of distance covered things like that, Milner breaks records mm-hmm. and he's obviously the marathon man, isn't he? So it definitely makes sense. And after the match too, I couldn't quite make out what Klopp was saying, but there was a moment that he had with Milner. Had his arm around him, they were both smiling and things like that. And I, I, you could lip read Klopp saying to him, um, that is why I wanted you on the pitch. And then Milner start, says something along the lines of, um, it's okay, don't worry about it. In other words, that's why he was benched. Mm. And this is why you, you couldn't make out what they actually said. But, you know, there must have been some underlying thinking there. I'm not sure what it was, but maybe it's to do with the fact that Milner knows how to win. He's got that, he's got that winning history at the likes of City. And maybe he's more set up to, to doing that kind of thing, to getting the team over the line, the little dirty tricks. Like, there was a moment at the end of the match when we had a corner. Yes. And he stupidly, well, not stupidly, geniusly, uh, put the put the ball outside the corner circle, um, semi-circle, knowing full well what he was doing, just as a means of killing the game for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Um, and the, the top teams, is not as as grim as it is, the top teams do do incorporate those little actions. I think the thing about Milner as well is that, he's, and I don't think there's, there's many players at the club who are like this, He's a sub that you make when you're losing. He's a sub that you make when you're drawing. He's a sub that you make when you're winning. That he can sort of come on and do a different, or, or sort of carry out a different, um, you know, task considering what the game state is. So with Liverpool at one 0 down there, you bring on James Milner and you say, okay, you know, you you're one of the top Liverpool players in terms of progressive passes this season. Start getting the ball forward to Salah. Start getting forward to Mane. You bring him on in a situation when they're one 0 up. And you say, plug those gaps, keep it, keep it calm, try and win the ball, just get in the way. I th- yeah, I think you can't you can underplay as well the the um, the influence of character on these types of these types of matches and pressure moments throughout the season. Um, it's obviously not particularly analytical, and you, you obviously can't quantify it and things like that. But from a management perspective, you do want people in there who. You know, they're experienced. The it sounds very, very yada, but <laughs> they've been there and done it. They know how to get over the line. As as frustrating as those, you can't quantify it, but you just know it's there. Yeah, you just know it's there. They, these players with real character who um, determined and traits like that who will be constantly talking to the teammates. Klopp spoke recently about something to do with his team talks wouldn't work if Milner wasn't in there or something like mm. this. And players like that, you you really, really have the value. And I think, I think clubs once they get older, these players they should really, even if they start to regress, if they can afford keeping them, you should keep them until you until they force a departure. Because these players keep the dressing room as as it does sound really a but as as you know, as old fashioned as it sounds, there is such a thing as a, a dressing room culture yeah, and, yeah. And, and like cohesion. Yeah, and um, standards that get set. And I think United, after Ferguson, were very quick to get rid of the likes of Ferdinand, 
Evre, Vidic, Fletcher. These are all characters who've really been part of that determined makeup under Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And he went very quickly, and that's something that United now need to get back. Um, Arsenal never seen to replace Vieira. Mm-hmm. Um, Saul Campbell and players like that, actually Cole. And now they're known for being a bit of a lightweight team. And I think Arsenal last summer went about not necessarily recruiting talent to an extent, but recruiting characters also. So you got you bring in Nick Steiner, you bring in Socrates, just to give that dressing room a bit of a bit of a mentality boost. Mm. And I think Liverpool have got to a point now whereby we've got a very, very, very strong dressing room. We talked a couple of episodes ago about how many captains or, or previous captains at other clubs we've now got in the dressing room, the likes of Wijnaldum and Henderson and Van Dijk for his country and players like this. So to, to bring on a player like Milner or start with a player like Milner or anything, these players should be kept in the squad for as long as we can keep them for. And in pressure moments like this, they become very valuable. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The thing I've always noticed about Spurs when Liverpool play them, and this this has gone back for years. I remember, I think I mentioned this on the pod before, but I remember when um, Rodgers played the Aspoas' uh, Spurs, Rodgers' first season, I think Darwin scored the win in a 3-2 win. Maybe it was Gerrard from the penalty spot. But... Um, they played a 15, 20 minute period in that second half where Liverpool couldn't touch the ball. And I, I left Anfield that day saying, I tell you what, Vias Boas can, could have these as title contenders. They can play like that every week. I mean, obviously, I ended up looking foolish because Liverpool was the death knell for them when they beat them 5 0 at White Hart Lane. But um, it, it happens at Anfield this season. Sort of around the 60, it changed very quickly. Um, and of course, they scored on about 70, 71 uh, more. So I knew it was coming and it came and it was between 60 and 85 for me. It was a good 25 minute spell. And it's weird because I never felt like Liverpool were under the cosh. It never felt like a goal was necessarily coming, but I had a look at the, the numbers going to White Scouts in terms of XG. Spurs had eight shots in that 25 minute period between 60 and 85 and the combined XG was 1.2. So in that 25 minute spell, they should have scored a goal. Yeah. And... and that comes from primarily, if I'm remembering right, the alley header, um, which just gets over a little bit, and the um, save yeah. from Son. Uh, yeah. Not Son, sorry, Mora. Um, and the Son one as well. And the Son, so, yeah. So they're the main and three. There was a couple from distance, but they're the main three. Yeah, there was another chance too where Deli Ali tried to dink it over Alisson. Um, Let me tell you, from where I was, <laughs> it looked like thing. it was going, like I... It looked like it was floating in, and I thought, please, not again. Not yeah, another no, goalie I mistake. Was, I was the same, yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, so that's Spurs 25. Um, and let's face it, Alisson got us through that. Um, we've spoken a little bit about some, but I just want to talk about that. It's ultimately a double save, isn't it? Because there's a little bit of a second ball transition when Trent loses it to, um, to Rose. But the way he saves that first on shot, and he's done this a couple of times, he did it against Barcelona as well. He doesn't just push it out, sort of where you would expect him to push it out. He, he, it's almost like he assesses where he has to push it out and gets it as far away as possible. Not necessarily far away as possible, but in the one spot where Spurs can't profit from it. He did it against Barcelona uh, at Anfield where I think it was Suarez might have had a shot. And instead of pushing it out, Coutinho, Coutinho and Coutinho Suarez was lurking. Yeah. So instead of basically pushing it out and 
as as not any normal goalkeeper would do, push it out away from the post and a neighbour Suarez to tap it in. He pushed it forwards and, and towards the ground where Matip could then mop up. So I mean it, it was remarkable to see and, and, and I think the one from Mora, I think I think uh White Scouts at the downs are 0.5. It's a very good chance, it's a poor finish. But the way he holds it, the, the speed he's down, these don't look like sensational saves, but his footwork and his understanding of where he's got to be in relation to where the ball is, is better than any goalkeeper I've seen at Liverpool. Yeah, without doubt. We, we said this last week in terms of, well, I think it was last week in terms of, uh, it looks like he's making very easy saves because he doesn't necessarily make Hollywood ones, but they stem from his position and his assessing of situations and I think certainly in relation to making saves, he makes very, very good decisions as a goalkeeper. Sometimes he makes the odd little silly um, decision in possession of the ball. Sometimes he's a bit um, risky, let's say. But certainly when he's making saves, he's really, really assured, um, usually in the right place. And just a little word on that, that Spurs dominance too. Um Spurs had 15 shots across the course of the match. Mm. Two in the first half. Yeah. So 13 of their 15 shots came in the second half. Um, Alisson, you know, we, we another thing I said last last week, I, I think I said it anyway, in Klopp's previous finals, I feel like he's been really let down by A, his individual players, but B, his goalkeepers. Mm. lay against Sevilla, um, Man City, yeah, yeah, Man City in in um, the the penalty shootout. Um, but also Fernandinho, if you remember, it went through. Oh yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Mignolet in, in the Sevilla final conceded three decent goals, but you just feel like Allison would have saved mm. them. Uh, they weren't unstoppable shots, and this is a pressure moment in the final. You expect your keeper to try and make a difference, and then obviously Carrius had his unfortunate um, mishaps last season you know, concussion and stuff like mm. this. But regardless, it's it's still results being decided by goalkeepers. Um, I think Alisson decided the result to an extent this season on the positive side rather than the negative side for once. Uh, really, really stepped up. Um, and I think he's an absolute elite goalkeeper for me. Do, do you put him in the same bracket as Van Dijk in terms of importance? I put him in the same bracket as Van Dijk in regards to securing results, yeah. Mm. Uh, I think Van Dijk influences performance a bit more, but in terms of strictly securing results, mm. I think a, a goalkeeper is really, really important for securing results. It's it's no... Um, what's the word? It's it's, it's no... Ugh, completely gone. Go on, what's it, your reckon? It's what are you trying to say? Like, it's no... Fluke. Yeah, it's no fluke that Liverpool in past seasons have performed very, very well for the most part, but finished fourth. Coincidence. Fin- finished fourth. Coincidence, that was a word, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so it's been a long weekend, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's no coincidence that Liverpool have performed very, very well for, vi- for numerous seasons now, but ended up finishing fourth, ended up finishing fourth, and that kind of thing. Um, and it's because we've had substandard goalkeepers, let's say, I don't think there's a position on the pitch that influences results more so than a goalkeeper. I think if, you, if you've got a goalkeeper, you can get results. You know, last season, United finished second. Yep. 
He finished second. But that team. And the metrics said but, he should have finished sixth. And lo yeah. and behold, where did he finish this season? Yeah, and that's because De Gea almost single-handedly is securing strictly results for them. The performances aren't that great, but the results are. Uh, and I think Allison has really showcased that this season. We got 97 points in the league and we win the Champions League. And it, it just happens to coincide with us signing an elite goalkeeper that can make crucial saves in big moments. So they have that 25, he gets to 85, and all of a sudden, I was, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I was flapping. Um, <laughs> I was absolutely flapping. But I say, I didn't feel like, feel like Liverpool went under the cosh, but I don't, maybe it is because of what's happened in, in the past. You don't sort of have necessarily have that confidence, but Spurs starts to drop. They, you know, a couple of players went down with cramp, and I start to think if Liverpool somehow concede here, Spurs won't last the 30 minutes of extra time because they're absolutely shattered. But the likeliest outcome is a clincher now because Spurs were, were, were out on their feet. Um, and it came in the most glorious way possible. Um, a moment that we will never, ever forget. Um, Matip gets his first ever assist for Liverpool. I'm really happy for him because, I mean, his turnaround's been phenomenal. Um, and I just also love the idea that, yet again, a, a Virgil van Dijk miscue from a volley leads to Origi getting an absolute clutch goal at a time when it matters the most. First it was Everton, and now it was against the, against Tottenham. Maybe you should try that every time from the edge of the box. Um, it's a great finish from Divock Origi. Um, the, the, you know, XG, it registers around 0.04, according to White Scouts. I think that's probably a little bit on the sad, on the low side. But, I mean, it's a banter stat, isn't it? I think it's, it's but, worth noting, though. I think it was his weaker foot. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. It's And it can only go one place. Yeah. I mean, live in the live in the ground, it, you, you're going, ah, oh, it's trickling wide, that, and it nestles in, you're going, how the hell has that happened? Um, and I love, also love that Marnie's ready to follow it in as well in the back post. It just shows you sort of the alertness of, of him again. Um, it is a banter stat, but it's still brilliant. Three shots on target in the season's Champions League, three goals. <laughs> semi, two in the semi-final, one in the final. He's now got, and we've talked about his conversion rate before, uh, his goal conversion rate in all competitions this season finishes on 41% which is, yes, it's unsustainable. Yes, there's probably a conversation to have over the summer whether where he sort of fits in. Um, I mean, I think he's absolutely nailed on. You can't sell the Valkyrie, you know. Um, no. Even if he stays as a fourth slash fifth choice striker, um, he will regress to the mean. His XG for the season was around three and he scored eight. Um, Let's just go through a few conversion rates here. Let's have a look. Uh, same goals per 90 as Ronaldo. Yeah, well, there you go, yeah. Obviously, he's got a lot more, a lot more minutes, but same goals for 90s, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, <laughs> funnily enough as well, I looked into his... I looked into last season, Liverpool last season, conversion rates. Um, guess who was top? <sighs> Di Vakarigi. Was he? He was, again. He was top last season, conversion rate in the squad, 27%. He only scored about four... Uh, so again, it probably stems from him not being that involved. But maybe there's something there in terms of him being a very, very good finisher. You know, we don't know. Uh, it's interesting to say the least. Um, just another little word on conversion rates. Uh, Arigi, obviously 40, 41% this season. Kylian Mbappe, 22%. Neymar, 20%. Messi, 20%. Griezmann, 17%. Salah, 15%. 41, 41. is um, insane levels of output that he won't, he won't continue, he won't keep it up. But 
But even you know, if, it's, even it's, if your dress is slightly, it, yeah. he clearly finishes. He can clearly finish. I, yeah, I just, I just can't. I can't really. I, I'm, it, I'm looking at a list of players here, a list of really expensive players, basically on Weishaupt here. And the player, you know, you got countless names in this. Uh, 30, 30 top names on this list that I'm looking at here. And the top conversion rate on it is Jaden Sancho, 26%. So for Rigi to be on, I think that the most sustainable one there, impressively, is Raheem Sterling, actually. 24.8%. Mm. That's, a fair, that's a fair conversion rate, that, considering he's played 5,000 minutes this season. That's, you know, that's superb. But um, for Rigi to be on 41 just shows his level of impact, I think, this season, because he's played very reduced minutes, had very few shots. But when he does shoot, he seems to score. I mean, before the Everton game, he played 11 minutes all season in the first team, and that was against Red Star on the 2 0 defeat. I, I, I can't, I know we sort of we focus on the analytics here, but I, I can't remember a story like this. I, re, I really can't. No, um, his definition of an impact sub is like, And maybe that's what Liverpool have needed. I'm just, it's, it's absolutely Do remarkable. You know what, though, if, you, if you look at United, when during their period of dominance, they always had like Chicharito. Solskjaer coming off the bench and yeah. just influencing things. Carlos Tevez. Erigi this season has been that man. He's been that man to just come on and just find a way to secure a result by just doing something crazy and being alert to certain situations and stuff. So, you know, long may I continue and I, I totally agree that he's a, he's a nail, he nailed on to get a, another contract or, or, and to get extension or whatever. I, I, you know, he's 24. Um, and he only turns 24 in April, so he's not, he's a young 24. He isn't 25 till next April. Uh, last season it was 37 and 7. This season it was 8 and 22. Sorry, 7 and 37, yeah. And it's 8 and 22 this season. Um, include obviously three in the Champions League. I, I mean, is it just the case here where you look at his career and he's ultimately and you know maybe this is a separate segment on a pod altogether maybe we still have to do a Divock special God knows he deserves it um, are we looking at a player here who came to Liverpool when he was 21 in a team that was sort of developing under Jürgen Klopp and then he goes out on loan to Wolfsburg well no then he's doing well and then he gets injured and he never really recovers he never really becomes the player but he has shown signs here and there he scores five goals in five games in December 2016 you know, he carries Liverpool through that December period. Um, and then he goes off to Wolfsburg, who were in a relegation playoff that season and only stayed up by beating, uh, you know, a second division team to, to remain in the Bundesliga. And then he comes into a team that is hitting its stride, it's fitting, it's firing. It knows exactly how Jürgen Klopp plays. And he gets a conversion rate of 41. Now, I'm not saying he'll get a 41% conversion rate forever. But... Is this just the case of a player who's starting to mature in a good team, and and basically we should sort of write off everything that we, we we've seen from him? I mean, don't get me wrong, he wasn't great when he came on. He really didn't didn't play well. But sometimes you just need a player to do what he did, and that's what he and he managed it. He, he he clinched the game with three minutes to go. You know, he's he's, he's twenty four. You know, is, are people sleeping on Divock Origi? I suppose. I think he's definitely he's definitely worth keeping, and I think Liverpool as a group. I've really um, demonstrated what it's like to to witness development. Um, I think we were very intent on getting a young group, a young foundation together, group of about maybe 15 players who are all good ages, all hungry to, to learn and things like that. 
and they all developed together. And I think, I, I think really, if we're being honest, the league wasn't really part of that. Uh, but he's, he's forced his way in, and that that suggests serious character. You wouldn't have got that initial chance unless he was a superb insane. So that's another thing there. And then when he has got these opportunities, for whatever reason it could be, it could just be a case of... I mean, I was going to say that it could be a case of luck, but the amount of times he's done it now, this season, really big moments. I think every goal he's scored, has, or certainly 90-odd percent of the goals he's scored, has been a decisive one in terms of the results. Uh, it just it, it really does offer a lot. Uh, I think he's definitely worth keeping, and you don't, you don't know... You just don't know. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to... Yeah, I mean, you can... This, we're judging this based on outputs. We're judging this based on outcomes here. We should really be looking at performance because that's mm. what the, you know, the podcast's about. What is the extent. underlying performance saying? Yeah, what's the underlying performance saying? But, I mean, the underlying performance is okay anyway. Yeah. It's not like uh, terrible or anything like that. But this is definitely one that's being really pushed by... His outcomes, his his own personal results, which you can't you can't ignore. But I think if you've got a team of players who are all outcome, then that's the problem, because it can easily. So yeah. if you look at Arsenal at the start of the season, all of those players were outcomes. Aubameyang was on about twenty seven percent. Lacazette was absolutely like on about twenty five percent. If you're relying on both players to sort of an outcome players. That's the problem. But if you've got somebody who's come off the bench who's an outcome player, then that's that's absolutely fine as long as you've got the players alongside them or who are starting instead of them who have got the underlying numbers to back up their fantastic performances. Yeah, yeah. You never know. And I think with, with strikers too, players in that area who are intending on scoring goals and things like that, you really do become reliant on your own confidence. And I think the moments this season that he's, that he's given us should give him a, a real massive boost in terms of his own belief in his own ability, uh, and I think I think Lewandowski. I mean, I'm, I'm comparing Divacaridi to Lewandowski, but we're getting running away with ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lewandowski, when he first arrived at Dortmund, I think his debut season was shocking. Mm. I think it, I think he scored like I, I, it's worth getting up actually. Uh, I will do. But I recall him not hitting the ground run and eventually just kind of catching fire and going a bit crazy with it. I'm not saying the league will do that, but you know his general profile, his general base is decent. He's obviously got the character there. Obviously got obviously superb and pressure moments. The fact that he scored that with his weaker foot suggests he's decent with his weak foot and he's you know relatively two-footed, young. If he's um, if he's happy with maybe a backup role and that that's that's a squad void filled there because not a lot of players would. Um, I assume he wouldn't be on a a, a, a great wage so that's another thing um, but yeah it's just a very it's just become a very useful option and one that's definitely worth keeping around and one that has almost developed a reputation now whereby if we do need a goal and you throw him on people will almost expect a goal like Solskjaer for example yeah, like yeah. Solskjaer yeah people you know that narrative ends up sticking with you and you, mm. you end up becoming that super sub that that, that person who you know, if the scores are level, he gets thrown on and he he enters the fray knowing himself, I'm going to score here, I'm going to decide this. So, you know, th- those players are valuable. Nine in 43 in Lewandowski's first season. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. And then that moved from, so nine from in 43, 
became 30 and 47. See, like, <laughs> I mean, that's, that a, that's a little bit scary, to be honest. If the league had done that, Jesus. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? You can't even imagine it, can you, but playing with a front four. So <laughs> the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So the game, the, you know, the game finishes. I mean, Alistair's still got time for another good save from Son. You know, just tips it round the post. Of course he does. Um, Liverpool are the champions of Europe. Deserve Josh on the, on the on the basis of the season. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because they they, they lost three away games, which I'd, I'd be interested to see. Um, obviously, in two thousand five, they um, they lost a couple of away from home as well. But you know, is they beaten Bayern Munich, they beaten Napoli, they beaten PSG. Albeit, you know, they've lost in a couple of those places as well. They beaten Barcelona. I think it was deserved. Yeah, I do. I think uh, I think we're a very 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 difficult team to beat in a knockout competition over two legs especially you incorporate the uh, the factor of Anfield you incorporate um, how Klopp will always have some kind of offensive threat no matter what and you also, you've also got to consider how suited our team is to possession play or counter attack and play soak and pressure we can, we can do it all kind of thing very adaptable team if we have to sit back and soak pressure using the likes of Van Dijk aerially and players like that, we can defend. Counter-attack through the speed of the likes of Sadio Mane and, and Mo Salah. So there's an element of um, risk versus reward that we pose to opposing teams constantly. And it really baffles opposing managers. I think Nico Kovac, especially at, at, at Bayern, really was torn between whether to go for it and whether to stay tight. And I think he opted to stay tight. Mm. And it it backfired, um, and I think that the tempo that we've been able to play at in Europe has been just a, a greater tempo to any other team. Lionel Messi and Suarez were on on knees after the semi final first leg, even though they just won three 0 I just don't think teams have been able to live with us. Uh, I think we've had a very tough run to the final, and although we weren't too good in the groups. Um, we were still finding our feet to that extent. We were still going through that period of development where we, whereby we were learning how to soak pressure. We were learning how to how to adjust based on game state. So if we had a lead, we were learning how to sit on that. Um, and there were season problems there. Um, and I think we was missing the link between the, the attack and the midfield. I think there was too much of a gap mm. there. The attack was isolated. I think gradually we've, we've overcome those little issues. Um, and I do think that we are—it's it's tricky to say because you don't just want to say as simplistically we're the best team in Europe. But we—I I can't think of many teams out there that that would cope with us over two legs. Mm. Um, I'm looking at Man City. Yeah, I'm looking at Barcelona because let's face it. It was, I mean, the, the XG was absolutely, and again, this comes down to game stakes a little bit, but the XG over the two games was level, even. Um, possibly PSG, but they're just an interesting one in general because you can see how mentality matters. Yeah, uh, Real Madrid get their act together, and then you go and who else? I mean, I we were in Bilbao on 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 Sunday. We were sort of going through the list of potential winners next season. Um, I don't know how much of a better man you are, Josh, but I mean, what would you have Liverpool at in general? I mean, we're in the in the pecking order. Would you have Liverpool? Because I'd have them second. Yeah, but I'd have them certainly right at the top because, as I said, we're just so suitable to all different types of match scenarios and we constantly pose the elements of 
you know, are you going to go for it or are you going to sit back or what are you going to do from an opposition perspective? We're so capable of adapting to all different scenarios and things and we've got speed, we've got fitness, we've got technical ability, strength, aerial ability, mentality and Anfield, the manager, we've got, we've got everything. Um, very, very difficult side to face. So, and we now seem to have um, gotten over how to win a final, um, mm. how to be a bit pragmatic, how to include some of their, how, how to be a bit more risk averse uh, because you're ultimately a victim of your own errors in a final. There's no going back there. Um, so, yeah, I just think we're a very difficult side to face. And it's no wonder that, you know, there's always rumours, isn't it, that oh, so-and-so wanted to avoid Liverpool, so-and-so mm-hmm. wanted to avoid Liverpool. And you don't know if these rumours are true. But if they are, it wouldn't surprise me because because of the threats that we that we and, and the, the issues and the questions that we pose to opposing teams. They're uh, the third slash fourth in the weapon, by the way. Who's above us? City and Barca, which I think I think Barca's yeah, ludicrous. Yeah. I, I I think Barca's ludicrous personally, but maybe maybe Messi is Messi and he he, he elevates them. I just think they're in a little bit of trouble. Um, I'll just read out as well for our listeners. You know, City basically going down a list: City, Barca, Liverpool, Real Madrid, PSG, Juventus, Bayern, Atletico, Tottenham, Dortmund, Chelsea, Napoli, and then you got like Ajax, Inter Milan, Atalanta, <laughs> Leipzig. There's not a lot to be scared of there, is there? Well, I don't think Liverpool are scared of anybody anymore, to be quite honest. If Liverpool draw any of them in a two-legged knockout tie, they're fancying the chances. Yeah, and I think another thing worth mentioning is in these knockout ties, I think, you know, I've used the reference before from boxing that people talk in boxing about styles make fights. And I think in the Champions League, knockout fixture against the team you've never faced before kind of thing from Europe, mm. different league. Styles make it. Uh, and a lot of these top European teams, you know, they're attractive, focused on possession play and loads of nice little technical footballers. But Liverpool, uh, so fit, so fast, um, so play at such a high tempo and intensity that when we play the likes of PSG and Bayern, who are so used to just winning regularly week in, week out, they can't, they can't cope with the pace of it. They can't cope with with the speed of the game. And I think while Klopp and Guardiola are in the Premier League at their two clubs, I think England will remain as the... Well, maybe not England, just those two specific sides and Spurs included will, will remain as the, the high-tempo teams. And if you're playing a team that, that is fitter than you at any level... And faster than you and, and things like that. It's hard to cope. It's hard to deal with that. Uh, and as I said, I'm reiterating what I've already said. But L- Liverpool are a really, really difficult team to beat. Difficult team to to find a way through. Very well-rounded team. Few weaknesses. And our, for me, our biggest weakness is our right side, and that is improving because I think Trent is going to one day, mm. pretty soon too, be be elite. I think he could be the best in the world in his position. Um, Robbo's still young so he's he's not going to be old by that stage by any means and you've got Alisson there obviously Van, Van Dijk it's, it's, it's just a top team very well rounded side and suitable to to face no different styles in Europe and things like that also worth pointing out as well just you know the group stages they didn't actually sort of if all the games are two-legged knockouts 
avoiding the idea of away goals because I don't think you can because game situations change. They didn't lose a single game. You know, PSG's 3-2 two and 2-1. Two, okay, they got away goals, but it, you can't really look at it like that. Uh, Napoli's 1-1. Um, they beat Red Star and then they, 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 they progress against Bayern, Porto and Barcelona before beating Tottenham. So, and if you want to use the Tottenham game from the two leagues, they've won that on two legs. So, it, it's, it is what, you know, they are... Yeah, it's, no, say, it's the, no fluke that no. Klopp hasn't lost at um, a knockout, knockout tie. Yeah, it's, it's no just, fluke that, that there's definitely something in there. Yeah, it's remarkable. A remarkable season. Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, on this journey. Um, we will be continuing over the summer break. Uh Send us some uh, ideas, you know, what, what you want us to talk about. Some short transfers will be coming up as well, but uh, I'm at Christian underscore Walsh uh, and Josh is at Distance Covered. Uh, you can also join the Facebook group, the Blood Red group. Just type in Blood Red into Facebook and, and, and join the conversation there. Uh, maybe next week we'll have a little chat about the fixtures. They're out. <laughs> the season's only just over and already the Premier League fixtures are coming out next Wednesday. Uh, and we'll also look a little bit at like, what next for Liverpool? Uh, where did he go? Um, and how do they maintain what, they, what they've done this season both at home and abroad uh, thank you very much um, bask in the glow of, of what's happened over the past uh, week or so it's a special time to be a Liverpool fan let's hope it continues for a very long time I've got a real feeling that it will if Jürgen Klopp remains at the helm uh, so thanks very much to Josh I've been Christian Walsh enjoy your weekend and we'll see you next week you've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo